Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of organic growing from a science-based perspective and draw on top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. My guest this week is a repeat guest. I wanted to follow up again with Travis Higginbotham. Travis is the new director of cultivation support for Fluence. Prior to working at Fluence, he worked at a state-of-the-art, environmentally controlled greenhouse covering 50 acres where he was the head of research and development. They grew annual and perennial crops for big box retailers supplying the northeastern United States. His focus was on rearing beneficial insects, IPM protocols, disease testing, and trialing new genetics from around the world. He recently received his master's in horticulture from Virginia Tech. This resulted in equipping irrigation booms with lights for photoperiodic flowering applications to a controlled environment which propagated over 1.2 million perennials from stage 3 tissue culture per year. He also has a Bachelor's of Science from Clemson University. Hey Travis, I really appreciate you coming back on the show. There was a lot of stuff that we didn't get to touch on uh, during our last talk about lighting, and you have this vast background in in controlled environments and agriculture that I'd really love to chat with you about today. Yeah, Tad, now I'm happy to be back, eager to see what we talk about today. So this podcast is probably going to jump around quite a bit, but the first thing I wanted to talk about was VPD, which stands for Vapor Pressure Deficit. Uh, As you know, it's a relationship between temperature and humidity, and I know Fluence has a VPD chart. Can you explain what VPD is and how humidity and dew point are important variables in greenhouse and indoor environments? Sure, sure. So it's a loaded question, but um, I will do my best here. Um, So the VPD chart that we have on our high PPFD guide is, is that it's a guide. Um, and it's, it's for people to kind of understand what VPD is, because in some ways it can be pretty complex, but hopefully we can walk through it real quick and it can be a little bit more simpler. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's the deficit, VPD, vapor pressure deficit. It's the difference uh, between the amount of moisture in the air and how much the air can hold that moisture in the form of vapor before it is condensed into dew, right, or um, before it's condensed into water droplets on leaves and things. So whenever I think about VPD, I think to myself, how much space in the air is available for moisture um, and vice versa? And usually in a greenhouse setting, you know, by ba- based on what we feel, we um, equate this to humidity. And in a way they're tied, but in a way they're not. Um, so if we think about how plants use moisture and how temperature can regulate this and ultimately light can regulate it, um, it's through photorespiration, photosynthesis, and ultimately transpiration in the plant. Okay, so, and CO2 is linked to it as well. Um, it's hard to talk about one thing without having to talk about six others when it comes to this kind of stuff. But when a plant takes a CO2 molecule in through its domain, uh, you have three orders of magnitude worth of moisture come out of that stomate. <laughs> so in order for that process to be efficient, you have to have space in the air that's open for moisture. And this allows the plant to transpire and translocate minerals through the plant efficiently. And let's say if, it's, if the air is completely saturated um, with moisture, and you're getting to the plant possibly where you're going from vapor and clouding in the air of moisture to puddling on the plant, it's going to be very hard for that plant to breathe, so to say, because there's no room in the air 
to keep pushing out moisture. And so that's why it's, it's very important to understand the relationship between humidity and VPD and why, why it matters. Does that make sense? So we want to avoid too high of humidity in the sense because at that point, like you said, the plant can't breathe, but we're also creating uh, a better environment for mold and mildew at that point too on the extreme end of, of high humidity or high VPD. Is that correct? Yes. So, um, so how a lot of these pathogens work, and, you know, we can get to mildew, but first we can talk about botrytis because it's very ubiquitous. Uh, it's, it's ever-present. It's everywhere. And you have to have uh, three main conditions for a pathogen to be effective. Um, and one of those is, for one, you obviously need the pathogen. Two, you need um, the adequate temperature for this pathogen to be effective. And three, you need the conducive environment. Um, and so when we talk about botrytis in this situation, for one, we need the pathogen, we have it. We have botrytis spores that are floating around everywhere. And then usually you have moderate temperatures, which botrytis usually lives well and can reproduce in moderate to low temperatures, especially during the night. Um, and then you have moisture present, which is huge. So when a spore lands on moisture, which could be puddled on a leaf due to high humidity, um, that imbibes the spore and the spore produces a germ tube, and that germ tube can sit over cells and produce enzymes that break down the cell walls, and then you're infected with botrytis. Um, if there was not water puddling on these tissues, you wouldn't be imbibing botrytis spores as fast. <laughs> so the, what you're trying to do is have a good environment for the plant, but then you're also now with too much vapor and too high of a humidity, you have a conducive environment for pathogens to infect your plant. Mildew is similar in that um, it's, it's a, it works a little different than botrytis, but it needs a similar environment, and it can spread extremely fast and start colonizing uh, cell after cell. Uh, and in some ways, the way the cell reacts to mildew, um, some plants have a what you would call a hypersensitive response once they get infected. And that's the plant's defense response against a pathogen. So let's say if a uh, powdery mildew uh, infects a cell, the plant response, the plant notices this is happening, and it tells the other cells around the infected one to die. And the plant's thinking there is that it will inhibit the growth of that pathogen. But however, it's, it's opposite when it comes to botrytis and powdery mildew. Once that hypersensitive response happens and those other cells are dead, okay, now it's easier for the pathogen to infect those cells. So some plant defense responses are actually beneficial, and then some hypersensitive responses in regard to powdery mildew are not. So that's why powdery mildew can, uh, can colonize and move so fast when the conducive environment is there. So do we have those same issues at the low humidity end of things? Um, this, this is where temperature, you know, and irrigation strategies also come into play too in sanitation. So there's a point where, you know, the conducive environment will allow pathogens to spread and multiply and infect, you know, at a rate that we can't control. Um, when we have the environmental conditions at a certain level to where we can prevent infection, 
that helps. We also have to know that many of these pathogens are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. And so our sanitation practices have to be in line, not only with how we're treating our environment, but also how we understand the pathogens. Um, that answer your question? Yeah, a little bit. So moving back a little bit here, and I want to talk about treatment options too. So we're not just explaining a problem, but actually give some options for listeners to solve the problem. But uh, sure. one thing I've noticed with my outdoor squash, and I think I've mentioned this on previous podcasts, is it seems to me that it's when there's high fluctuations in temperature and humidity outdoors is where I see powdery mildew move in. So if we have a nice sunny day followed by a rainy, you know, rainy day or vice versa, those big swings in temperature seem to stress the plant and seem to allow these spores to really take hold. Uh, so I've always, I've always gone under the assumption that we want to avoid major changes or fluctuations in humidity and temperature for an indoor environment because uh, that seems to cause a lot of the plant stress. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I agree. I agree. Usually in nature, you'd like to think on a, on a let's say not on a rainy day, just during a, during a normal day when the sun comes up and the sun comes down, um, things are, the environment is slowly transitioned, right? So there seems to be at least somewhat of an acclimation period during each stage of the day, <laughs> so to say. Um, and in, in controlled environments, you know, many, many times we have we have environmental conditions turn on, and then they're on for the photo period, and those environmental conditions, including CO2 and irrigation and everything else, turn off during the dark period. These blunt on and off um, are not what plants receive in nature, right? And plants are obviously inclined to favor what they've, what they've genetically in the past received uh, through, through the environment. So I agree that we're still fine-tuning. Growers are still learning how to fine-tune their systems to most adequately fit the genetic needs that have been brought up in these plants in their native native habitats. So what I'm hearing a lot of growers doing is having their lights shut off gradually. So maybe half the lights will shut off at one point and the next set will shut off a few minutes later or um, ways of reducing that extreme on and off that you're describing. Have you seen any research or results to support that sort of approach to reduce dew point? And can you talk a little bit about dew point? That's something that we, I wanted to bring up as well. Um, sure. So let me think how to... We've done some studies when... Uh, studies on, you know, slowly at the beginning of the day, let's say during veg, you have, you know, long days, 18 hours. So let's say that the first two hours or the first hour, you slowly um, increase light intensity to somewhat mimic a sunrise, right? Um, and then you have your photo period, and then towards the last two hours or last hour, you slowly decrease that intensity again to try to mimic a sunset. Um, when you have these, it, it seems like a good idea, but when our goal is to increase yield and to increase quality, during those two hours that we slowly increase and slowly decrease light intensity, we're losing overall light accumulation for that day. So it's been hard to justify doing that. Um, and, you know, I don't think anyone has yet to iron out the perfect photo period for this plant. And don't get me started on the options of photo period manipulation <laughs> with cannabis, but um, I feel like in that regard, you have to, you have to determine what your goal is, right? Is our goal to treat this plant 
as perfectly as, as we can? Um, or is it to crank out as much yield and as much compounds in it as possible? And if, if that's the case, then these gradual on-off stages are to, you know, decreasing our overall energy production in the plant because of the total light accumulation during that 24-hour period. Well, what about going then to, if you knew what your DLI was, the amount of light that a plant can take in, over a given photo period, if you took that and had a, a, a rate that you wanted to hit over, say, 20 hours then or 19 hours, could you then incorporate in some of these principles? I, I, would, say, I would say yes. No, and you, you hit the nail on the head, though. That you know, I, I say that growers do need to talk about DLI, and once they under DLI, then they can approach these things a little differently, right? So if you have a DLI of I don't know, let's just say 40, and that that number came from a duration of 18 hours, um, but you know that you want to apply a long day, and so if you were to bump your DLI uh, to 41, I'm not doing the math right here right now, but you wanted to bump it to 41, and that gave you an hour before and an hour after. And now you have a total period, uh, but you are able to slowly increase intensity. Then you had your 18 hours, and then you were able to decrease intensity. Um, I think there are ways that you could go about it as long as you didn't take up your 18 hours and you didn't take up that desired DLI. Is there any advantage to it from the perspective of reducing dew point on the leaf surface there? Um, I think so if your temperature mimics the increase, right? So temperature dictates, uh, you know, dictates humidity and dictates dew point a lot. So it, it's a good question. And, I, you know, I, we're working on a few things right now. I won't go into too much detail. But um, all of these environmental conditions are linked, and I've said that in the past. So if we're slowly increasing light, you know, transpiration of photosynthetic rate and photosyn uh, photorespiration, um, photo right, Th those are all linked to this as well. So how, how should CO2 be treated during that hour? Um, how should temperature gradually increase from the night temperature so we can alleviate any possible negative, you know, effects of, of dew point and things? And that, that, in my opinion, is still yet to be determined. Um, and it's the reason for that is because everyone's system is so different. <laughs> you know, you, you, may, you may talk to a grower who, who has a system like this, but at the at the um, during their photo period, they may actually bring temperatures up into 85 degrees, right? So their temperature regime is so different from someone who keeps their max temp at 75. So it's a it's a challenging that's a challenging point right now, and I, I can appreciate the question. So really, the big takeaway then would be that we just need to be aware of what VPD is and how it relates to humidity and that we need to uh, make adjustments based on our own environment as we learn things and say, okay, well, in my environment, I seem to do really well within this range and uh, try and try and maintain and stay at those levels. Yes, I agree. And we need to, we need to try to make sure that temperatures don't drop too quickly, right? Um, because the water vapor will condense, you know, into into liquid liquid water on the on the leaves and things when temperature drops quickly. So when we turn off lights, and you know the plant processes somewhat decrease in overall percent of function, then we also need to make sure that our temperature is adequate in there too. And I, 
the next step with cannabis, I believe, in controlled environments in general is we're going to have to monitor all of these things. You know, um, we're going to have to monitor at, at, at what pace, right, do, do all of these fall in line together and how, how can we maximize them? Well, it's exciting to be part of an industry where we're still learning so much. I really, I really enjoy that aspect of, of cannabis. And it's such a fun plant and to grow in that regard. Uh, one thing I want to bring up just that to, for listeners to keep in the back of their head is that ultimately the cultivar that you choose is so important when it comes to uh, mold and mildew resistance, especially. Uh, I, you can grow two of the exact same uh, or two of the same plants that are different cultivars and get very different pressures in relation to mold and mildew. So I just want to touch on that so people don't get too caught up with this and forget about how important the cultivar or strain they're growing really is. No, and I, I completely agree with you. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, if we if we can take another second on mildew, I'd like to say one other thing. Yeah, definitely. I want to actually go back to that so that this is a perfect time. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, every no matter what we do, you're, you're 100% right that everything is strain dependent, right, or strain specific, depending on your system, depending on your what you define as quality and even pathogen resistance and everything else. It's all based on your strain. Um, but something I wanted to share with your listeners was um, in the in the ornamental market, you know, in, in the flower market, uh, those growers in one greenhouse, in one acre of greenhouse, probably manage over 10 different genera. And that can probably equate to at least 50 to 60 different varieties uh, and ultimately maybe 40 different species. <laughs> it's, it's quite amazing. And um, each plant, like we just said, responds different, differently to different pathogens. Um, something that we've learned in the past two to three years that's actually been implemented on a commercial scale is how to make the plant more resistant to powdered mildew and fungi in general uh, diseases, how, how, do, how can we make the plant be tougher, more tough to combat these pathogens? And there's two strategies. One of them is what's called uh, silicon, and it's a mineral nutrient. It's one of the most plentiful minimal nutrients out there. It actually covers the earth's crust. Um, but silicon is not considered an uh, essential plant nutrient but a plant can use it. Uh, and it comes in the form, when you apply it to plants, it comes in the form of potassium silicate. And one of the strategies that's being used in other crops outside of cannabis for mildew prevention, uh, for example, on zinnias, on roses, um, even on basil in some cases, is adding potassium silicate to your fertilizer. And you would apply this at a certain parts per million every seed and you would slow, slowly build up an accumulation of silicon in the plant. And what silicon does is it, it's similar to calcium in that it focuses on um, the cell walls and it makes cell walls more stiff. And to some degree it can be so stiff that it inhibits the enzymes that pathogens produce to try to break down cell walls. So, there, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing to me with how our agricultural industries are moving away from pesticides and embracing biocontrols, the extent at which we're going to prevent disease and to prevent pest damage. We now can implement something as silicon 
to make the plant so strong in some cases that we reduce powdery mildew severity by up to 80%. And the rest of the powdery mildew is actually killed by our preventative sprays. So, you know, it's just growers, in my opinion, should take some time and dive into the literature in some cases on some of these pathogens. And you can find some very cheap and easy to implement solutions to some of these pathogens just by what's been done on other crops in the past. Now, the challenge with, with powdery mildew, and you mentioned potassium silicate, which is, uh, I think, a great product. We carry a powdered version in our online store called AgSil 16H. Uh, there's a lot of people now selling it. Uh, for the reasons that you mentioned. And there's a great uh, article, which I'll post on the podcast page about silica. It has a ton of benefits. One of the ones I found most interesting is it actually mitigates microtoxicities in the in the leaf surface or on the, in the leaf tissue itself. So if you have a little bit too much boron or copper or um, manganese, for example, it'll help spread that out so you get less uh, of a toxic effect in, in the leaf tissue on top of all the other things that you mentioned. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, and that, that, that's, I don't mean to interrupt you, uh, but that, that's called sol- soluble silicon and the plant converts it into that. And so when you apply, let's say Axil, you have, uh, the plant converts it into soluble silicon and then polymerized silicon. Polymerized is what helps you on your cell walls. And the soluble is what helps you transport a lot of these other mineral nutrients, like you're saying. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know that. And the other thing I found is that cannabis in particular seems to just thrive on potassium, even more than other you know, vegetable crops and ornamentals that I'm familiar with growing. So getting that extra potassium is in general a good thing. So it, it's a good mix. But the one thing I do want to mention is that it's not organic. And that's important for a lot of, uh, a lot of our listeners and at least something to be aware of when you are applying something in your garden. It, it can't be. There's some forms out there that can be, but yeah. Yeah, there's. I've seen other silica products, but in terms of what you mentioned there, with the amount of available uh, silicon, is there? There tend to be a lot lower, so that they're not necessarily plant available. Like a lot of people put rice holes in their media because they're high in silica, but it's not in a form that the plant can take up. So you're waiting, you know, for months potentially for some of this to become available to the plant as it gets broken down. Yep, I agree. And, that you know, the crop times that we deal with, there's no point in adding rice holes. <laughs> uh, and, you know, you can, I've heard strategies of how you can break down rice holes and then, and then apply a powder. And that, you know, you can have a plant response in less than two weeks when you integrate a powder. But most of the, you know, most of the growers I meet are not using a loose substrate, right? They're using these compressed blocks of, whether it be core peat or rock wool. So you couldn't even mix in something like that. So I agree. It, yeah, that's a challenge to get a product like that. And I wanted to touch on your potassium. Um, I, I've learned similar things like you have with potassium being important with cannabis, but we have to be careful because potassium also regulates EC. Um, so the more potassium we, the more potassium you include in your uh, fertilizer, you increase your EC also. And then it, it's uh, a little harder for, you know, the, the fertilizer to be up, to be taken from into the plant because the water's a little saltier. And when you look at your nutrition, you, you want to apply potassium in a one-to-one ratio with nitrogen. So just something to keep in mind. 
I, yeah, I, I definitely want to talk about nutrition because I think you have a lot to share there. But before we do, can we talk a little bit more about strategies for dealing with uh, these these particular, like botrytis and powdery mildew? So some of the other ones that I'm aware of out there are, let's see, there's sulfur burners it is one option that I hear that a lot of people have used. Um, lactobacillus, you know, through raw milk and some of the enzymes in there, there's been some research on. Uh, there's potassium bicarbonate, and then there's another form of bicarbonate that you can get, I think it's a green cure. I can't remember what it is right now, I'm blanking. But uh, are you familiar with other, you know, more organic options out there and their efficacy around cannabis? Great question. Um, so powdery mildew is tough. <laughs> and in, for example, like in the ornamental market, it's it's so tough to control in some cases. They're, they're just breeding away from it. You know, they're they're making plants that are just, uh, resistant to it, period. So like now there's, instead of impatience that were covered in mildew in the past, now we have resistant genetics that won't even get infected with mildew. That's how the, that's how other markets are dealing with it because it's such a struggle. Um, that's why I think things like silicon in your constant feed just automatically gives you a strong buffer. But as far as other measures, you know, like I, I've seen some growers who they have, they get plugs you know, from other suppliers, and you automatically have to treat these plugs as infected plants. I mean, even if even if the supplier is completely clean, um, it's just a safe bet to have a quarantine program, right? And there's products out there, and I could I could list an array of products. The problem is, um, I've learned that one product will work in one state, <laughs> and that same product will not work in another state. That that really is frustrating. Um, but you're right, there's potassium bicarbonate, and I believe that's called millstop. Um, and then you have the sulfur burners and bacillus. And I believe sulfur uh, burners work well. You have to be careful because that can, at too high of concentrations, it's not too healthy also for humans, and you can have some burn on plants. But elemental sulfur as sprays helps. Uh, but it, my advice is, um, I would have something in your feed, whether it be silicon or high levels of calcium chloride, um, to help the plant strengthen its cell walls to reduce overall infection, and then have preventative sprays in place with potassium bicarbonate, or even have vaporized diffused sulfur in your growing environment um, to try and help mitigate whatever microenvironments that you have that could harbor powdery mildew. And third, if we had a cultural change, I would say if growers can, and this can be a struggle, but if you can get your airflow to two meters per second, then you are automatically kind of diffusing all of the microclimates into one in your room. And that way, the more airflow you have, the less chance that you're going to have of mildew actually um, having a stabilized population. Well, let's talk about airflow really quickly in relation to mildew. So. I've seen some people where they're just, you know, blasting the plant and it affects their transpiration rates in the hopes of it does. preventing it. Uh, and then I've seen other people where they want the air coming uh, out underneath the canopy and being pulled up through the canopy. And then I, mostly what I see is fans up above the canopy to help cool the lights to keep that heat from coming down to the plants. Now, obviously with LEDs, that changes a bit. But what what are we looking for? Uh, in an indoor environment for airflow in terms of 
where we should be positioning our fans relative to our canopy. Yep, and I would say that that uh, is definitely defined by what regulations you grow. Like, so are we dealing with large plants, very few plants, but large plants? Are we dealing with a ton of small plants in a grow, um, and they're shorter and they're not so big with so much canopy? Um, and that that to me is really where, where we first have to ask, okay, what what kind of plant and the stage of plant, the size of plant are we dealing with? And then from there, are you able to position um, fans underneath the plant? Um, and are you also able to do either horizontal or vertical airflow? Um, for example, like in lettuce, you know, and we can learn from other industries. If we look at lettuce, lettuce has a problem and it's called leaf tip burn. And this is due to calcium deficiency and it's because with, with LEDs as sole source lighting or supplemental lighting, when you try to push the plant at a certain pace with a certain amount of light at a certain temperature, the plant can't translocate nutrients fast enough. So you end up in the new growth having cells that don't mature, and it, then it, over time it looks like burn because um, those cells die and they stretch and they split. Um, and so a way to fix this is with vertical airflow, and it does exactly what you said. When you have airflow that comes directly down onto the plant, you're automatically increasing transpiration rates. And so if you were to increase airflow, you would obviously need to also change the way that you perceive the plant's transpiration rate. And does that mean changing EC a little bit, bringing it down just a little bit so things can move through the plant easier? Um, and so it's, it's interesting. I get some of these same questions, and it all depends on the system. Ideally, you would want some airflow that, yes, touches the plant from the side and also from above. But if the main thing with mildew is can you get inside the canopy, right? So you usually have a bordering edge, which is called the buffer zone, all these plants that are bound in the middle. Those in the middle can harbor many, many populations throughout. And if you're not careful during the night period, they can spread to your outer buffer, and then it's very hard to get control. So we want to manage our canopy too, making sure that you can uh, that airflow can go through there to reduce the spore pressure in the areas that are getting less airflow, essentially. Exactly. Yep. And in other industries, they just space their plants. You know, if they have the available space, they just space them so there's enough airflow. But in, in this crop, in this industry right now, that's the, that's the last thing I'm going to recommend to somebody is spacing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that, it, it's a challenge right now, trying to get airflow in between the canopies of multiple plants. So when I first started growing, I was told that you want to be able to see through the plant. That was how they you know, just the, the two second lesson on pruning. But then as I got into it more and more, people started looking at how far light is penetrating the canopy and then removing leaves that were below, you know, a certain PPFD, for example, uh, in the, in that canopy as, because they just weren't photosynthesizing light as effectively. And they were potentially places where mold and mildew could, could take off. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, so when you talk about pruning, pruning leaves, we're talking about pruning viable solar real estate for the plant. I understand that people are worried about different wavelengths penetrating, you know, a certain amount of leaves to where, let's say, by the fourth leaf down, you're not getting any benefit from the light. Um, that's where fluence, I think, really separates. And I'm not trying to have a sales pitch. 
here, but that, that's where full spectrum truly comes into play, right? So a multitude of spectra, when it's being applied properly, you can have, let's say, red and blue. That's not going to penetrate one leaf. That's going to be absorbed as, as soon as it touches the leaf surface. But these other spectrum actually actually channel through the leaves and do have photosynthetic ability as they travel through. Now, what is the extent of that, right? That's all based on your density and light intensity. Um, but I, I have seen systems where they, they prune the heck out of their plants. And I understand why, and it's for the reasons you say, but at the same time, I'm thinking those leaves are generating your energy. Um, so it, I think if anything, pruning at certain stages could be effective for the the objective of your plant. So during flowering, when you're focused on buds, and let's say by the end of week five in flowering, and you know at the end of week six, your flowers and your buds should be formed, that may be a good time to actually take some leaves away and focus on the buds. Uh, but at the same time, any energy that could be harnessed during that time goes into the buds. So that, that's a hard one. And I, I wish that, you know, in the future, I'm getting more and more hands-on experience with cannabis. Um, we can kind of see what the threshold is with pruning. So essentially what you're, you're hitting on is that you can use pruning as a, a trigger too with the plant in terms of stressing it and uh, removing extra ex excess fan leaves, for example, to focus its energy on bud production. The plant's naturally trying to senesce. It's ending its life cycle. It's trying to produce seeds. Obviously, these are you know not viable in that sense because they haven't been pollinated, but the plant's still going through that process. And by um, removing all these this excess all these excess leaves, the plant really has to focus its energy into its its bud production. Does that sound about right? Um, well, the the plant process is going to be dictated by photoperiod. Um, cutting of leaves, yes, I would say abscission causes a certain level of stress, but overall, if you're under a short day, the plant's going to be focused on flowering. I do think that some leaves can be a nutritional sink. So some older leaves that let's say most likely look pretty rough, you know, to the naked eye compared to newer fresh leaves, those could be a sink for, um, macronutrients. So in that case, if they're darker green, if they have some chlorosis, things like that, definitely prune them because they're taking away from what is the newer growth. And in flowering, during a short day, I wouldn't say that the stress helps the plant in regard to pruning, but more if you were to prune, then the plant rechannels the focus from going into those leaves and goes into the bud. I don't know if that came off clear, but... Yeah, I get what you're saying. The reason I'm asking is because I've seen there's there's a book out there and it's like thousands of dollars or something crazy where the uh, guy, I think he's out of Colorado, recommends removing all fan leaves in flower. So literally all you have is these these bud sites and they claim it it maximizes their their yield. And I know a few people have tried it and gotten decent results. And I always attributed it to uh, excessive sort of plant stress that's opening you up to more diseases and other problems, but potentially allowing the plant to um, focus more of its energy on its bud sites. Though I haven't really ever wrapped my brain around how removing all of those, um, you know, photosynthetic or potential all that leaf surface is actually going to benefit the overall plant health and, and yield.
Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm with you there. And we have to be careful because I, I've seen strategies of, let's say, reducing nitrogen towards the end of flowering, right? Um, and either that's to apply a stress or that's to try to not have so much nitrate concentrated in the bud or applying a stress through water stressing the plants towards the end of flower or cutting off leaves, like you're saying, abscission stress. Um, stress can be a good thing when we understand what it does and how it does it. If we apply stress, too much stress, the plant's going to put all of its energy into combating that stress response. And it's not going to be focused on what we want it to be focused on. So I think, I think there, and to your point, we still have so much to learn on how to manipulate stress to increase quality and to increase yield. And the next question is half of these compounds, um, and it depends on who you're talking to, when are they produced and why are they produced? You know, there's theories all around on why the plant produces them, but then, okay, what, what causes an excess production of those? Can we harness that energy? If so, we need leaves. But if we're applying stress through abscission, maybe we don't need the leaves because it's a stress response. You know, there's, it's interesting. This plan is just fascinating. It is. And the other factor is on a commercial scale, you just don't have the labor to prune that much in most cases. It's, it, it's just too much work. So most of the growers I know that are producing on scale are typically, you know, staffed, but running around crazy and don't have time to go through and remove all of these leaves in most cases. Uh, and it may not be beneficial based on the, the difference in, in yield and what we know about plant stress and, and all the reasons that you just mentioned. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Labor is a huge cost and that certainly needs to be a priority that's taken into consideration. Um, so I would say if anything, if you, if you go in there and pruning is part of your IPM, um, integrated pest management schedule, right? So if you end up seeing environments that are forming within the canopies, I would prune so you wouldn't have powdery mildew. If you go in there and you see leaves that look like they're nutrient sinks, I would prune that out so the rest of the plant can use the nutrition properly. I personally would not prune for an abscission stress. No. Let's, let's, simpl let's simplify this a little bit. So take me through. You're, you're going to go through a room and scout for powdery mildew and botrytis and for pests and insects, uh, in theory, on a daily basis, if, you, if you're staffed for it, uh, just to know what's going on in your room. So you come across a plant that has powdery mildew, say, at, at some point. How are you going to treat that in a, in a flower room, for example, where you don't want to be using any, doing any foliar applications for numerous reasons? Um, what options do you have besides removing the infected material? <laughs> that's, that's a great question. In regard to mildew, you don't have many right now. That's why I, I, that's why I really push having things in your constant fertigation system um, because that helps you when you get to a case like this because hopefully it prevents a case like this. Um, so when you're, when you're in there scouting and you end up finding uh, not potassium, when you end up finding mildew, um, pruning would be the first option, but then you're touching it, right? You could possibly be spreading it doing it that way. Um, the first thing I would do is if you have any ability to space the plants, I would space them so either those leaves could be exposed to light or air. You dry them out and you fry them with light intensity, um, the spores. Uh, or if you possibly can't apply any spray under the, under the buds, I guess it depends on your regulations there, 
then you would obviously try to hit it with some type of spray. A, a, an interesting approach, though, that I want to mention that's come out through a company called BioSafe is, uh, is a product, I believe it's called Prevent. Um, and what this is, is it's a, it's a microorganism, and I can't think of the strain right off the top of my head right now, but it's four applications to prevent powdery mildew and botrytis. And what you do is you would apply it as a foliar spray, and it actually colonizes the tissue so botrytis and powdery mildew cannot. And it has no, it's completely an environmentally friendly item to use, um, but it, it takes up the real estate before botrytis and powdery mildew try to move in. And so in my mind, if you're going to have any success with powdery mildew, it's all going to be due to your prevention strategies. Yeah, so we want to grow cultivars that are less susceptible to PM. We want to uh, manage our our relative humidity and, and VPD. We want to treat all plants that come into the facility by either you know dipping or spraying and quarantining. Uh, we want to keep our our clothing and everything, our access to the room really controlled so that we're not creating any new vectors. But at the end of the day, spores are going to make it into your room. There's no such, no one's growing in a clean room per se. So at that point, it's just a matter of managing, you know, like you said, using IPM strategies to really keep everything as, as controlled as possible. Yeah. And that, 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 that's a great way to, that's a great way to bring it all together. Yeah. So the other one that we touched on at first but haven't gotten back to yet is botrytis. It's really, okay. it's the worst. <laughs> and it spreads so rapidly. Uh, the first time I saw it in a crop, I started doing a whole bunch of research and read just how quickly it can spread. You know, it, it multiplies so so rapidly in when it gets in ideal environments. How do we really treat that? Because it's always happening at the end of flower and uh, it's it's just a big problem for growers. Yeah, botrytis is, is finicky because it's everywhere. It's sitting all over our face right now as we talk. Um, but it, I, I actually worked on botrytis uh, for my master's, and uh, we tried to use strategies using UV light to kill it on contact with as short of a dose as 30 seconds, a pulse. Um, and it was highly effective. Um, and... With LEDs and UV, it's very, very difficult, if not impossible right now, to have such a high radiational wavelength in the form of an LED, right? It's not, it's not efficient at all. There's technology out there from other companies that use UV, um, UVB and UVC for sterilization um, of certain pathogens. But um, anyway, my point in saying that is I even went so far as to use UV because botrytis is so hard to control. <laughs> Um, the thing with botrytis is first, it's key too, because, uh, the different stages of botrytis, uh, there's a stage called, uh, sclerotia and the, the fungus can produce, and it is, it's referred to as an overwintering structure. And this structure is formed when the environment is not conducive. And so let's say you have botrytis likes cooler temperatures, anything below 70 degrees, it usually performs much better. It can perform at higher, but it performs much better and much more effectively below 70 degrees Fahrenheit. And so when temperatures are consistently higher, up into the 80s and 85, it can transform into the uh, sclerotia form. As that form, it can tolerate pretty much most environmental conditions it'll come in contact with, and even some chemical products it can still withstand. And so 
where these sclerotia take place is they are on dead plant material on your tables. They're on the floors. They're in the cracks. They're in places that you, you wouldn't think twice to even clean, but they're staying in there and they're staying dormant until the environmental conditions come to where botrytis is, uh, is known to grow, and then it triggers it back into the reproductive stage. And that, that's where I think people don't uh, take sanitation uh, seriously enough in between harvests is all plant material every day that falls or any cut material needs to be cleaned up because botrytis will go dormant and it will colonize and grow on there. And if you're not careful, you can have a spore, sporadic colony grow on there and air hit it, right? You have thousands of spores in the air. Um, so cleaning is huge when it comes to botrytis. And you're right, there's not many things you can spray on botrytis. That's why I think in the future UV light may have some potential on killing pathogens on contact when, you, when you're not allowed to spray. But cleaning and sanitation daily and in between crops, I mean, scrubbing the corners of the room, scrubbing under the tables and hosing things down, um, that's critical when it comes to botrytis. Wow. You know, as terrible as, you know, a lot of these pests and, and diseases are, it, at the same time, it's pretty amazing the survival and reproduction strategies that nature has come up with in these cases. So I have to kind of tip my hat to a certain extent, too, to these uh, to these diseases. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's fascinating. Yep. One thing that I, I hear a lot of growers doing in in organics is just taking their leaves off of their plants when they trim and using them as a, a mulch right there on the soil. And I've always sort of been against that. And I think the reasons that you just listed are, are the biggest reasons why we want to make sure we're removing all leaf material. And that doesn't mean just throwing it in a bucket and leaving it in the corner of the room for the rest of the day. You got to get it out of there. You got to clean your hands. If you're, if you're doing that, you know, you want to go back in with the same clothes. So yeah, these are all things that people need to think about with their workflow to really reduce the amount of pressure that they're getting. So that's that's a great point. Yeah, that that's uh, using leaves on top of the soil as a mulch. I completely agree with you. That's going to be a haven for thrips, for spider mites eventually. And yes, uh, it's dark under there. It's usually cooler under there, and it's usually more moist under there. You will have botrytis <laughs> thrive in those environments. You know, that's a no-no. All right. Well, we haven't even gotten to the topic that you wanted to talk about when we first chatted before the podcast, which was nutrition. So I don't know if now's a good time to touch on that or if, if you want to take it up in maybe another podcast, but um, it's definitely something I wanted to hear your thoughts on. Sure. Yeah, I can, I can talk about it briefly, at least the, the things that can be manipulated and should be thought about. Um, so I think the first thing that needs to be said is you need to think about nutrition in regard to your substrate and you have to understand how your how your substrate um, buffers or how quickly it uses uh, the, the nutrition delivery system for your plant. So in regard to rock wool, that's considered hydroponic, right? A lot of times the fertigation strategies that are applied to rock wool are also applied to just uh, flowing water for herb production in hydroponic systems and tunnels and, um, and things like this. And uh, in regard to uh, core, compressed core or compressed peat, and, you know, it's, we're getting close to the age where uh, many growers um, of multiple industries are going to start to use wood fiber because it's truly a renewable resource. 
um, and a renewable substrate compared to some of the alternatives, especially peat. Um, so wood fiber is a is a very complex molecule, and I, I'm not going to go into that because that's a more of an IPM thing. But um, these different substrates have different buffering capabilities. Uh, rock wool does not. So rock wool will have a continuous feed through it, right? There's no buffering. You're not going to have buildup. You're not going to have differences much in pH like you would um, in different substrates. So that's the first thing I'd say that you need to understand first is what substrate are you going to choose? Why are you going to choose it? And how are you going to deliver nutrients through that substrate to the plant? And how are you going to manage it? Um, so um, with that, I think everyone understands EC pretty well. Um, or they're getting to the point where they do. And EC, and this is just simple, it's, it's the amount of saltiness your fertilizer is, right? So how, how, many, how much salt is present, how fast can the plant take it up in, in liquid form um, is based on its saltiness, the, the increase or decrease of EC. And that's usually due to high concentrations, high PPMs in your concentrate, um, and depending on if you have a delivery system of 1 to 50 or 1 to 100, because um, then your EC at the end of the hose is going to be different based on your injection rate. Um, so without going too much into the substrate and looking more on just the nutrition in general, some key rules of thumb to keep in mind are, first off, uh, no matter what fertilizer you're using, I would mix it how your vendor recommends that you mix it and you allow it to go through your injectors and you take a sample at the end of that hose and you send it into a lab and you get a nutrient analysis. No one can help you and you can't help yourself until you've seen what's on that nutrient analysis. And what I mean by that is all the micros and all the macros listed out in parts per million. That's exactly what your plant's receiving or that's exactly what your substrate's buffering. That to me is a huge priority for any grower. It's hard to know anything from a label, to be quite frank. <laughs> you need to just allow these things to go through your systems and then see after your system. Because injection rates, we can do the math, but they're not perfect. Um, there's still at least a five to ten percent error within some of these systems. So don't be don't be too firm on the numbers on your piece of paper. Get them sent into a lab. When you see these parts per million of macros and micros, let's first start with the macros. You have NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Um, a, a rule of thumb for nitrogen and potassium is you need a one to one ratio. If you have a hundred parts nitrogen, you need a hundred parts potassium. Um, potassium is known to regulate EC. So let's say you want to restrict growth or encourage growth. You can add more or less potassium, increase or decrease your EC, and you can control growth that way. Um, phosphorus, on the other hand, if you're not careful, you can have deficiencies quite easily. And let's see here. When we talk about phosphorus, a baseline number for phosphorus, if 12 parts per million is the lowest you should ever go. That's when you're trying to pinch pennies and you want to apply as less, the, the least amount of fertilizers you can. That's 12 parts per million. You're at saturation point with phosphorus at 24 parts per million. And when you go up past 24, there's, there's not been anywhere shown that there's a benefit for that. Um, there's, there's growth benefits when you understand how to manipulate phosphorus. So in some, some crops, especially in mother stock crops, you can, uh, you can manipulate inner node uh, between nodes. You can, you can manipulate the length with phosphorus. You can also inhibit flowering. So if let's say you're a grower and you're struggling to get the amount of yield that you want and you've never done a nutrient analysis, for all you know, you could lack 
in phosphorus, and that's reducing your overall yield because it's inhibiting flowering. So phosphorus is critical to be, I would say, at least at 20. 20 parts per million and you're safe. 24 is a saturation. You're even better. Anything above 24, it's not worth it. And uh, anything below 12, you're going to see deficiencies and start really hurting the plant. Um, Let's see what else here. Calcium. Calcium um, and magnesium are two that need to be understood because if they're out of balance, you then will have deficiencies of one or the other or both. Um, When thinking about calcium, you need a ratio at least of three to one, three being calcium and one being magnesium. And it's because they don't interact well together. So you need a trumpet with calcium so you can still get the plant to absorb both of them. Um, If you can, and if you understand how to mix your own salts, you want a five to one ratio um, of calcium to magnesium. Um, So there's, there's multiple ways and it's fascinating. And I don't think cannabis has even touched on this yet, but there's multiple ways in regard to light intensity and photosynthetic rate on how you can manipulate nutrients in relation to light and control the plant so much more precisely than we do right now. Yeah, and basically what you shared I think is really important if you're growing using ionic nutrients or mineral salts. Now, how do we apply that to organic growing where we're actually in living soils in in media that contains a lot of high levels of microorganisms that are actually cycling these nutrients for us? Well, it's, it's a lot of the same principles, and at the end of the day, right now, all I can tell you is that side of things is the Wild West. <laughs> and the reason I say that is, is because I hear of these living, uh, living soils, right, and uh, I'm sure plenty of them, uh, I've heard plenty of them work fabulously, um, and it's because those companies have done the science in the background to understand how these microorganisms have mutualistic relationships and symbiotic relationships with each other and also the substrate and the plant. Um, And certain bacteria, you know, work together to produce nitrogen and ammonium. Um, And I think right now, you know, it's hard to regulate organic nutrition like you can, you know, mineral salt nutrition. Um, Because there's so many microorganisms that can have multiple reactions that's hard to have precision with. Um, I think it's it's there. I think some some companies have it down, and even you know including castings of certain uh, larvae and and other microorganisms. And you can even rear nematodes inside wax moth larvae in living soils if you wanted to to prevent entrance of fusarium carried by fungus gnats. Like it, it, there's there's all these different strategies out there um, that I I don't think are ironed out just yet. Um, and in some cases, if you if you have the ability to mix your own salts, um, I think that that first needs to be figured out with this crop before we try to figure it out with organic uh, mineral nutrition. Well, I totally agree with you that we don't have it figured out from an organic perspective. And these living soils, I don't think we ever truly will, just because of the fact that there are so many different complex interactions going on, like you mentioned, between uh, in, in the rhizosphere between the plants and its exudates, the nutrients that it's able to uptake through these different microbial communities that are so incredibly complex that we're still learning about, and you know how antagonistic or symbiotic 
various microbes are, and many of which we haven't even identified or can't culture in a lab to really study. So I totally agree with you there. That being said, what I'm seeing is, because this is basically our side of the industry and what I'm really passionate about, um, and I totally get why, <laughs> why it's something that you're not as into coming from an ornamental industry perspective, because it just doesn't exist over there for numerous reasons that make a lot of sense. But what we're doing is looking at soil testing, you know, an acid extraction using like a Malik 3 test, for example, or something similar as a way of seeing all of what nutrients are potentially in the soil, not necessarily plant available, and then comparing throughout the cycle and at the end of the cycle and seeing what's being used up by the plant over that period of time, and then re-amending that same soil as a way of maintaining those levels of fertility over time. Does that make any sense? Yeah, exactly. It does. It does. And like you can think of it in the same principle as a grower constantly using the same uh, nutrition in a concentrated, uh, concentrate, uh, what's the word, tank. So let's say that you, you irrigate um, with a certain fertilizer concentrate with rock wool. You use that same tank and the same recycled water over and over and over and over again. Those mineral nutrients are going to be taken up at different percentages, at different ratios. By day three, you're going to have a different ratio of those nutrients in the tank versus day one. So I agree with you. The plants will take up these and use these minerals so differently that we constantly have to keep amending them. Can I just, I, I'm just going to go on a short rant here really quickly. So one thing I've noticed about this, the cannabis industry, and you may not have seen this coming from the uh, nursery side of things, but people will come up, to, used to come up to me and they'd be like, hey, have you tried product X? I'd be like, no, never heard of it, whatever. So I'll research it. And either A, it's something that is got common ingredients, you know, that you know, you could find you could find a much cheaper version of. Or what I find more commonly is that grower will be like, hey, my buddy tried it and he got the most amazing results ever. And I'll look at the product and let's just say it's a it's a phosphorus product. Now Maybe the reason that his buddy got such a great result is because his soil was low in phosphorus or his nutrient program was low in phosphorus and that boost in phosphorus caused his plant to be healthier and he, he did great. Or, But that doesn't mean that that product is magical and it's not necessarily the right product for your program. If your soil is already high in phosphorus or your fertigation program already has appropriate levels of phosphorus, it may it maybe have negative effects on your on your soil or on your overall plant health and i just think that's something that a lot of growers don't take into consideration when they're looking at all these different products they just they just look at it either as beneficial or detrimental and they don't know they're not taking into account all the other variables that have to interact with within an, you know a proper nutrition program yeah, no, I completely agree, and that's that's part of the reason I said that first, before you, you dive into your nutrition, understand what the capabilities, holding and buffering abilities, starter charges of your substrates, and then figure out how are you going to measure your nutrition in those substrates, and then start thinking about your nutrition and how you're going to deliver it. I completely agree with you. Yeah, you have to you have to understand the soil first, um, and you can't just take take something by you know by word of mouth. You have to trial it yourself. You have to see it perform yourself, and you have to send in and get an analysis run. So you know exactly what's being delivered to your plant. Yeah, and you can't use EC in the same way with organic soil as you would with uh, rock wool or some of these hydroponic programs that you're you're talking about. Uh, I have seen people use EC if they 
didn't want to do or didn't have time to do testing and say that their EC was at a certain level and then they try and hit that same level with their re-amendment program, but it's not very accurate. But the numbers are gonna be off the charts for organic soil versus Rockwell and, and some of these other more inert media. Yep, and they're going to be different forms of minerals, hence the difference in EC. And it's going to be different. The EC is going to be different coming out of your hose as it is if you were to do a leach test out of your substrate. I agree. Yeah, well, was there more you wanted to talk about in regards to nutrition? I thought that was really helpful what you shared. I, I, I learned some stuff because I've never looked at it strictly from a nutrient and a PPM perspective because I've always used organics. So it's never something I've, I've looked at in quite that way. Well, I um, no, I don't really have too much more. I think in the future, you know, we, we could maybe have a discussion over more organic nutrition as it's more as I learn more about this crop too. But um, I think in the future we can talk about organic nutrition down to the PPM, you know, and we can mix mix substrates with certain per, you know certain percentages of this type of carbon versus this type of carbon, and, and try to figure out you know degradable cycles and things like that. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's a that's the right direction to go, and uh, we still have a lot to learn, like you said. But no, I I appreciate the conversation. I think it's been great. You know, you bring that up, but but I wonder how do we do that if every soil is going to have a have different microbial concentrations and diversity? So our nutrient cycling rates are going to vary. So we may have the same inputs, but at the end of the day. I just don't see how we really, you know, completely dial in that, that level of complexity that we're getting out of nature right now. Yeah, well, and I think that's going to take, you know, certain companies are going to have to invest in labs and, you know, other industries do this now. And they, they, they're going to get to the point where they, they understand the interactions because they've tested the interactions themselves. You know, and you can do this. You can You can take, let's say you want a certain trichoderma, mycorrhizae, bacillus strain, um, you can make a selective media. You can make a Petri dish that only grows that. And then you want to compare that relationship with another one. And then you can put those on the same plate together and see how they interact. And then extract that, put it into a liquid concentration and test it and see what enzymes or what mineral nutrients were produced from that interaction. These things can be done. The problem is half of the products, they give you a cocktail of over 100 microorganisms. And in my mind, part of the reason they give you a cocktail is because they're hoping some of those, or at least 50% of them, are going to have a relationship with the plant. So in nature, wherever, let's say, a petunia was native to, there's one strain of one microorganism that has a true relationship with that petunia. That's why the products that we apply on petunias have a cocktail of microorganisms because growers are hoping that they'll see a response from one of these strains because we don't know yet which strain does the response that we're looking for. Yeah, and I'd add to that, I heard Colin Bell with Mammoth Microbes talk, and he was talking about how they created their product. And essentially, it's a, it's a combination of four different uh, strains of bacteria. And individually, the plant response they got from the four of them was not nearly what it was as those four combined. And it was just through trial and error that they came up with what they came up with. But there is this sort of synergistic effect too that we don't totally understand either. So there's a lot to learn there. And, you know, I would love to chat again. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot too. Uh, 
once you've sort of been on the job for a little while, I know this is still a new industry to you and you're, you're starting to visit more, uh, more cannabis facilities and learn more about this plant. So that would be great. Yeah, no, no, I'd love to always enjoy it. Yeah. We're learning every day and it's, I can appreciate your, your listeners because all of them, you know, they care so much. They're trialing new things. Um, and they're all seeing different things. And eventually we're going to have to find a way to kind of come together as an industry and be like, okay, what have we learned? You know, what, what can we put in as some industry standards to actually move this crop along together? Um, so yeah, learning every day, man, this is, this is great. Yeah. Well, I, again, I really appreciate your time today and I look forward to chatting again here in the future. Yep. Sounds good, Ted. I will talk to you later. That was Travis Higginbotham with Fluence Bioengineering, manufacturers of LED lighting for the horticultural industry. Their website is fluence.science, or you can type Fluence Lighting into Google and it will be the first link. You're listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey. Don't forget that there's more information and articles available on our website and blog at www.kisorganics.com as well as links to the data and information we discussed in this episode on the podcast page. Thanks for listening.